It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The initials stenciled in thick block capitals in yellow on a dark blue background are designed to be noticed. F, B, I. Emblazoned on caps, T-shirts and jackets, they gained icon status slung around the shoulders of TV characters like Scully and Mulder in The X-Files and spawned dozens of light-hearted imitations, from the uniforms of the full-blooded Italians wrestling team to less PG-13 slogans. But as of last week, there's a new and more serious model available. Still the initials FBI, yellow out of dark blue, but above them a new motto, defund The T-shirts and caps sell for $30 on the website of Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Within days of the FBI search of Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago, Greene, several of her House colleagues, and some leading Republican candidates for House and Senate were calling for the agency to be defunded, abolished, even destroyed, for unjustly persecuting Donald Trump. It's language more often associated with their sworn enemies, the progressives. And it has an impact. Threats against law enforcement officers have surged. This week, Mike Pence, Trump's former vice president, pleaded with his party to defend the thin blue line. But Pence himself is part of a thin red line. Among Republicans, long the party of law and order, the voices speaking up for law enforcement have been drowned out. The defining test in the GOP primaries is loyalty to one man above party, country and rule of law. I'm John Prudeau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, will anything break Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party? Despite his attempts to overturn the results of the presidential election, his friendliness with dictators, hostility to old allies, and multiple active investigations against him, the former president remains the most powerful man on the American right. Midterm hopefuls and former critics are vying for his approval. Dissenters are being swept away. How did Donald Trump keep control of the GOP? And despite all obstacles, will he be the next Republican nominee for president? With me this week to discuss Donald Trump's tightening grip on the Republican Party and the likely consequences of the FBI's visit to Mar-a-Lago are Charlotte Howard and Idris Kaloun. Idris, you've racked up an awful lot of miles this week reporting for The Economist. But before we get into what you discovered on that reporting trip, how was the drive from Denver to Jackson? Because that's a long one and what I've always wanted to do. Uh, very long. It was good that we had company, Aaron Bronner, colleague in Denver, and I went up together. I saw a herd of bison for the first time in my life, which was pretty cool. Um, definitely have a buddy and some sort of entertainment. We put on this podcast series about the French Revolution. And after about 15 minutes, we had to turn it off because it was just completely sleep inducing. 
that stuff should be banned in cars, just like drinking. And Aaron and I have completely different taste in music. I would play people's voices. I would say, guess who that is? And she couldn't get Drake by voice. She couldn't get Jay-Z by voice. Really? Yeah, it was tough. Aaron, we thought we knew you. I love that you turned your road trip into a quiz. This is the true spirit of checks and balances. Yeah. No wonder you're so good at them. You're practicing the whole time. (laughs) Charlotte, what have you been up to? How are things with you? Well, I haven't been playing Name That Tune with any colleagues this week, which makes me feel sad. And I've had COVID, but I'm hoping to be on the other side of it soon. Well, Charlotte, I'm really sorry to hear that COVID finally caught up with you. and, And I hope you're not feeling too rotten. Idris, last week when we spoke, you'd been in Dallas and also in Arizona. This week, you're in Wyoming. What have you been up to there, apart from setting air in impossible quizzes and admiring the landscape? Um, Aaron and I went up to Jackson, Wyoming in order to see Liz Cheney, who was facing a very tough primary challenge. Although Cheney's incredibly conservative, you know, she's Dick Cheney's daughter. She was a rising star in the Republican Party. She's no fan of Democrats. She called them the party of anti-Semitism, the party of infanticide, and the party of socialism. Despite all that, she was really resoundingly trounced. And that's all because of her opposition to Donald Trump's big lie that the last election was stolen and her leadership of the January 6th committee, which examines the president's conduct on that day. So we drove up from Denver in order to see Liz Cheney's swan song. Four hours and 22 minutes left. So that's like almost, it is almost halfway. When you're based in the West, long drives are very common, but Wyoming is a whole different level. Do you want the snack? Yes. Okay, we have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It is America's least populous state and has one giant congressional district. Liz Cheney has been its lone member of the House since 2017. Continue on I-80 West for 110 miles. Over the course of the eight-hour drive from Denver, where I'm based, to Jackson Hole, the landscape changed from the sagebrush and cattle ranches that are typical of the High Plains to mountains and forests. We were driving to Liz Cheney's election night party at a ranch near Jackson. The stage was outside, surrounded by hay bales and American flags and framed by the Teton Mountains in the distance. A band played gentle country music as we waited for polls to close and for the result of Wyoming's Republican primary to be called. It was supposed to be a political wake, but it was weirdly fun. Guests ate and drank and they chased their cowboy-hatted kids around the fields near the stage. While we were waiting for results to come in, I talked to a few of Liz Cheney's supporters. A lot of them had known her for decades. Liz Cheney's an American hero, and our country was based on that, on people with a steel, with actually a, a backbone. And Liz is about the only one that's really, only one that's been willing to stand up. So who wouldn't support Liz Cheney? Well, it turns out in Wyoming, most Republicans. Although Liz Cheney voted in line with Donald Trump's positions more than 90% of the time, the invasion of the Capitol by his supporters caused her to break with the president and much of her party. So her loss was all but certain. Donald Trump won Wyoming with 70% of the vote in 2020. 
That's the highest proportion of any state. And on Tuesday night, it didn't take long at all to get the results. Ranch. We're pleased to have all of you here to celebrate primary election day, celebration of freedom and democracy. Then Liz Cheney stepped up to the mic. Two years ago, I won this primary with 73% of the votes. I could easily have done the same again. The path was clear. But it would have required that I go along with President Trump's lie about the 2020 election. It would have required that I enable his ongoing efforts to unravel our democratic system and attack the foundations of our republic. That was a path I could not and would not take. Instead, her opponent, Harriet Hageman, got about two-thirds of the vote, beating her by roughly 38 points. A former advisor to Ms. Cheney and an erstwhile critic of Donald Trump, Harriet Hageman has now fully embraced Trumpism. She's railed against the radical left agenda, the, quote, rigged election, and Liz Cheney's focus on January 6th. And tonight, Harriet Hageman has received the most votes in this primary. She won. I called her to concede the race. This primary election is over. But now the real work begins. As she alluded to, Liz Cheney's political life doesn't seem over. She still has a few months left of her term, during which she will continue her work with the January 6th committee. She also still has $7 million of unspent campaign funds. The great and original champion of our party, Abraham Lincoln, was defeated in elections for the Senate and the House before he won the most important election of all. Lincoln ultimately prevailed He saved our union, and he defined our obligation as Americans for all of history. Since her concession speech on Tuesday night, Liz Cheney has launched a political action committee called The Great Task. On a breakfast TV show, she even confirmed rumors that she is thinking about running for president in 2024. Many of her longtime supporters in Jackson swore that they would stand by her. Well, she's not going to go anywhere. She's not going to crawl in a hole and just say, you know, it's over. Uh-uh. She's committed. And I, I have a lot of admiration for her, and I appreciate what she's going to do. And I think she's not going away. I have said since January 6th, that I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office. And I mean it. Thank you all. God bless you. God bless Wyoming. God bless the United States of America. Thank you, guys. Idris, some fighting talk there from Liz Cheney, invoking the spirit of Abraham Lincoln. What do you make of her defeat? Yeah, I think it's fairly grim. I think that Liz Cheney has been publicly saying what a lot of Republicans in Congress actually believe, which is that they think that the president uh, didn't actually have the election stolen from him and that his conduct on January 6th was shameful. But because she has kept saying that, she not only was stripped of her leadership position uh, among House Republicans many months ago, but now she's been resoundingly defeated in this Wyoming primary. And that hinges, I think she said, entirely on on the fact that she has stuck by her, her basic principle. It also demonstrates the extent of, of Trump's hold over the party. Of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach him, 
after uh, January 6th, four of them have retired rather than face a primary and now four of them have lost their primary. So at most, only two of those 10 are going to remain in office. And that, I think, goes to show how much Trump is reshaping the kinds of Republicans who are going to be in office in the future. Idris, mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear your view about Cheney's future, whether you think there's a place for her. Because in Wyoming, there was some evidence of Democrats crossing over to vote for her in the weeks before the uh, before the election itself. In a general election, if she were to run for president, that wouldn't happen. I don't think Democrats aren't going to go rushing towards Liz Cheney. They would vote for the Democrats. So what do you make of her political future? Do you think she would run for president as a centrist Republican and then that would undermine uh, Trump re-election? She would be able to draw enough centrist Republicans away from the GOP to help ensure his defeat? Or what do you think her strategy is? What's her long game? She's openly mulling a presidential run, and I don't think she's decided whether or not she would try that um, within the Republican Party or as a third-party candidate. If she tried it within the Republican Party, it would go absolutely nowhere. If she did run in the general, which would be a pretty extraordinary step, it would be basically a kamikaze campaign to ensure that Trump didn't win. If she did that, she might have an influence in the same way that Ralph Nader had an influence in 2000 or maybe Gary Johnson had an influence in 2016, but it would only be to play spoiler. It wouldn't be a serious chance of actually winning the presidency. Idris, when we're trying to figure out the state of Donald Trump's grip on the Republican Party, the strength of that grip, there are a whole load of data points we can look at. One is the performance of candidates endorsed by him in the primary. The Washington Post's rather neat counter. They've looked at cases where Donald Trump hasn't endorsed the incumbent. And in those races, his win percentage is 80%, which is pretty high. And another thing I think is worth pointing to is how often candidates who have lost those elections have actually sought his endorsement as well. So these often feel like contests over who can be the most MAGA. You know, it was a testable hypothesis whether or not Donald Trump would would remain the kingmaker in Republican politics. And I think that the results of the last few months have demonstrated quite clearly that he has and almost every Republican politician is aware, very keenly aware of, of this dynamic. And, and that's why that goes a long way to explaining why they act the way that they do. Can I ask you, though, Idris, I mean, he sometimes doesn't endorse candidates until right before the primary, right? And so it's not always causation. Some of the data that suggests he's a kingmaker is simply correlative, right? Or is that too sunny if you're an anti-Trumpist? Is that too sunny an analysis? No, he definitely cares about his win-loss record, and he'll he'll wait until the last minute in some races to endorse, to inflate that. But if you look at, I mean, not only Cheney, but, you know, he's rounded up basically primary challengers for all of the, what he calls impeachers, and they've largely been quite successful, including against incumbents, which are pretty hard to torpedo. And if you look at the Senate races as well, which are open, um, you see that in, in a lot of those, his early endorsements have lifted people from obscurity into key nominations, people like J.D. Vance in Ohio and Blake Masters in Arizona and Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. Interestingly, though, when it comes to his Senate pigs, it's now looking like Trump's primary successes might not help his party take back the upper house after all. I mean, Blake Masters in Arizona is trailing Mark Kelly by eight points. Even Ron Johnson, who's the incumbent in Wisconsin, is behind by seven points in the general at the moment. So we'll be watching those races really closely. Okay, in a moment, we'll be taking a closer look at the latest developments in Donald Trump's legal battles and what they mean for his political future. But first, you know the drill. If you want access to everything we do at The Economist, then you need a subscription. 
This week's issue of The Economist is really a checks and balance special. There's a long piece by Charlotte on the relationship between the Republican Party and big business and how that's changed over time. Idris has a long read on the Republican Party, drawing on some of the reporting you've heard about in this podcast. And I wrote the cover leader with some help from other colleagues. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the show notes. One of the things that the three of us have been trying to work out is what are the implications of the FBI's raid on Mar-a-Lago? I thought a very good person to walk us through this would be Jack Goldsmith, who's the learned hand professor of law at Harvard University. He was one of President George W. Bush's top legal advisors, and he co-founded the Lawfare blog, which scrutinizes the misuse of law for political ends and is an invaluable resource for journalists like us. The most immediate concern, it appears, is that the Justice Department was worried about highly classified or sensitive information being in Mar-a-Lago unsecured. And so I think the search was, in the first instance, designed just to get the documents back and secure them. The next step is to see what was in the documents, to review whether they were, as Trump and his team claim, declassified, whether even if they were declassified, whether there's still criminal violations that were committed here. And you've written in Lawfare that a lot of this depends on how classified the documents are. And there's a difference between something that's classified and something that's you know, really classified that you wouldn't want to fall into the wrong hand. So could, could you expand on that a little bit? Sure. I mean, Barack Obama famously said that with regard to the classified information that Hillary Clinton supposedly kept in her uh, email server in her basement. And the idea is, and this is well known and well accepted, that the U.S. government massively overclassifies information, which is to say that it's possible that these documents that are classified, in fact, don't contain sensitive national security information. We just don't know. I should also say, though, that the criminal penalties don't necessarily turn uh, on whether the documents were classified or not. It, it can help Trump's case in some of these instances if he had declassified them or if they weren't classified or if they didn't contain sensitive information. But some of these criminal penalties apply to the concealment of government documents um, that he shouldn't have had. And Donald Trump's defense here, to the extent that he's made one, seems to be, well, I could preemptively declassify anything I took out of the Oval Office. And so, you know, therefore, by definition, that sounds like a bit of a crazy defense, at least to the taking classified documents, you know, part of the allegations here. Is it, in fact, I mean, or, or is actually the law there so murky that it's not as wild as it seems? Like so many other of Donald Trump's defenses in the face of legal allegations, it is crazy in the sense that he claims to have done crazy things, but it might not ultimately be crazy when it comes to his legal liability. Let me explain. The whole classification system in the United States derives from the president's power as chief executive and commander-in-chief and being in charge of U.S. national security. And the president has huge, maybe plenary, power to declassify documents. Now, the question, no one, though, has claimed to have a standing order, as Donald Trump did, that everything he takes from the Oval Office to the residence becomes declassified. And it's not clear that there really was any declassification other than maybe Trump saying, okay, I'm taking these the other end of the building and now they're declassified. So, yes, the president has massively broad power to declassify, but whether Trump's uh, sort of processless claims to declassify were valid remains to be seen. 
you've argued that it would only make sense for Merrick Garland to prosecute Trump in this case if he turns out to have done something really serious. Can you expand on your thinking a bit there? Because there's a counter-argument that says, you know, the rule of law is the rule of law. I firmly believe that the rule of law is the rule of law. But there are lots of considerations here. The first and most important question is whether Merrick Garland can bring a convincing case and win a conviction against the president before a grand jury for a clear legal violation. You know, we haven't seen that information yet, in my opinion. There's lots of bad acts surrounding Trump. He clearly abused legal process, but whether he actually violated criminal laws remains to be seen. An attempted prosecution against a former president would be hugely unprecedented. It would come in the context of an administration that is the political rival of the president and maybe a future political rival of the president. It would be very controversial even if he had an airtight case. And of course, there's always the possibility that uh, the Justice Department would lose the case, which wouldn't exactly help the rule of law. Yeah, so no good options here. I mean, we ought to say that Donald Trump, like everyone else, deserves the presumption of innocence. Of course. How about the accusations that Donald Trump and his lawyers have made of DOJ overreach here? I mean, my reading of it is that sending the FBI to knock on the door at Mar-a-Lago is kind of a last resort, and something must have really broken down in the relationship between Donald Trump's legal team and the Justice Department to get to that point. The FBI and the Justice Department has in the past in well-documented ways, made mistakes in investigating Donald Trump. And that's the background against which these charges are flying. Based on what we know in the public record so far, though, it does not seem as if the Justice Department, at least to me, was overreaching. It seems like that there's been an ongoing process since January of 20, really 2021. The Justice Department has been negotiating with Trump that there was a representation made that all the documents had been turned over, and then there was a discovery that they hadn't been turned over. And it appears as if this action was a last-ditch effort to secure documents in the face of real recalcitrance by the Trump team. Garland knows a heck of a lot more than any of us do, and he has studied and his team has studied in detail really down in the weeds of these laws and whether and how they can be applied to a president or former president. There are lots of difficulties there. So uh, the most important thing to understand here, I think, is how little we really know and how hard Garland's decision is. Charlotte, I think Jack Goldsmith did a really good job there of clarifying what we know and what we don't know about the Mar-a-Lago raid. But that's just one of several investigations into Donald Trump's behaviour. We heard this week that the longtime chief financial officer of the Trump organisation has pled guilty on charges of tax fraud in a case in New York. Can you run us through what else Trump's lawyers have on their plate, please? Yeah, I'm not going to run you through all of them because it would take so long. But some of the big ones, of course, include... The House January 6th committee investigation of the insurrection, they won't bring criminal or civil charges there, but they will present what they found in a final report. But there are a few other really big ones to keep in mind. There's a Department of Justice, a DOJ criminal investigation into the attempt to overturn the 2020 election. You have civil cases. Uh, In New York, you have the attorney general looking at the Trump organization and the Manhattan DA, the Manhattan district attorney looking at the Trump organization. In the past week or so, there's been more attention to what's going on in Georgia. So in Fulton County, you have an investigation of Trump's allies, including Rudolph Giuliani, people who are working for Trump, 
pressuring officials in Georgia to overturn the election. That's a criminal investigation that is heating up. But one thing that is just worth keeping in mind is how many investigations there are and how little impact they seem to have had to date on the popular perception of Trump among his supporters. Idris, is it even worse than that? Do these investigations somehow help Donald Trump, politically, I mean? I I think there's a case to be made that the Mar-a-Lago raid might have helped him politically. One interesting data point I saw was that uh, Politico and Morning Consult uh, does a monthly poll in which they ask whether or not Republican voters would go for Trump or Ron DeSantis in 2024. And when they polled in August after the raid had happened, they found that Trump's support had gone up by 10 percentage points, which is really remarkable. You also saw that DeSantis himself very aggressively backed the president. Um, You saw that there was a rallying around of Trump. Uh, People were calling for all sorts of things like defunding the FBI, like Josh Hawley called for uh, Merrick Garland to be impeached. There isn't really very much sign that uh, that Republicans are are breaking from Trump as a result of this. The the sort of rejoinder you have is some people saying, you know, don't criticize the FBI too much. But no one is saying, I think the president might have committed a crime and it's legitimate for the FBI to investigate him. One of the things I find really interesting is the way that the discussion around the rule of law and law enforcement just gets distorted. And you hear now some Democrats trying to attack Republicans for discrediting the FBI. You had a congresswoman in Virginia, Abigail Spanberger, trying to use this argument against her Republican opponent. But the history of Trump is that he specializes in elliptical arguments, you know, so it's not really that consistency is a prerequisite. So I think what you see as these arguments continue to ramp up is that what used to be a a president who would defend law and order now is simply one who defends it when it serves his own interests and then tries to weaponize it against his opponents. I think elliptical arguments is a great phrase. I mean, I'm struck as well by something that one of our editors, The Economist, Ollie Morton, said to me this week when he was reading Idris's piece, that you have this situation where Donald Trump is both claiming to be involved in politics because he wants elections to be more secure because they're not trustworthy and simultaneously trying to get people elected who are trying to undermine the trustworthiness of those elections, right, by putting election deniers in positions where they will be responsible for administering elections next time around. Idris, when you look at all these cases uh, together, I think it's reasonable to ask whether they might somehow prevent Donald Trump from running for president again in 2024. But I wonder if that's just the latest version of the Mueller investigation, the first impeachment trial, the second impeachment trial. I mean, is this another one of those things where, you know, Trump opponents are essentially wish casting? Yeah, it's hard to imagine one of these investigations resulting in a successful prosecution that ends in a conviction that is completely appealed by the time the 2024 election's in full swing. I, I basically don't think that's going to happen. You know, actually, it's, it's kind of remarkable to say, but I feel like the clock is is already slightly out mm. for the chance that any of this makes, makes, makes a change. I mean, what we've had in the past with the most recent disgraced president, who was Richard Nixon, was he retired from public life and he was pardoned and basically he lived in a sort of self-imposed political exile. And I think if Donald Trump had wanted that path, he would have had it. I think that if if he weren't actively trying to return to power, the heat of the investigations would probably be lower because just the the stakes feel so high and just the level of 
of misconduct at the end of his administration. We've seen level of scrutiny that no former president has faced. It'll be messy because, I mean, at this point, although Garland tries to be scrupulously apolitical, he really doesn't have an apolitical choice in front of him. Yeah, I don't envy his position at all. All right, we'll be back in a moment to explore how the MAGA movement more broadly is evolving. Idris, one way to look at how Donald Trump has changed the GOP is to look at the beliefs of candidates who are winning primaries now, which are really different to those of the pre-2016 Republicans. Yes, there's been a lot of optimism around the idea that if Donald Trump just went away, then the Republican Party would go back to being kind of normal like it was in 2012. Of course, Trump hasn't gone away, and the Republican Party remains in the throes of his systemic shift. Among Republicans, 70% still tell pollsters that they believe the last presidential election was stolen. And I feel like the center of this empire of paranoia is in Arizona. I was there earlier this month for the primaries in which voters chose three candidates for statewide office who don't believe that the 2020 election was fair and who will be in position to certify the next presidential election. Former news anchor Carrie Lake, who has campaigned on hating the media, is the nominee for governor. Attorney General, who will be the top law enforcement officer in the state, voters have nominated Abe Hamada, a political neophyte. We don't, we don't know that our elections have been hijacked. Our justice system has been corrupted, and it's time to restore law and order. But the most hardcore of the lot is Mark Fincham, who's now nominated to be Secretary of State, which is the chief elections officer. He attended the January 6th riot, previously admitted to being a member of the Oath Keepers militia, and has said before that if he had been Secretary of State in 2020, Donald Trump would definitely have won the state of Arizona. We can either choose to sit by and go the low road and let the deep state, the swamp, corrupt our elections, or we can set about the business of going the high road, holding people accountable for breaking election law. One of the people watching all this with alarm is Bill Gates. Not that one, but a Republican member of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, which oversees elections in Arizona's largest county, which includes Phoenix. He spent nearly two years defending the legitimacy of Arizona's elections against members of his own party. I can't imagine how it could be any worse. The rule of law is teetering in this state. For Gates, this primary season has demonstrated that what had been a powerful and vocal minority faction within the Republican Party has become the dominant one. We have to sort of like excise the tumor and then we can go back to being a successful democracy. But it's metastasizing badly and this is extreme. Again, I would, I would compare this as far right, you know, this is European sort of classic. That's what we become, a European far right party. That comparison to a European far-right party really rang true later that week when I and our colleague Alexander Suich-Bass were at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. This is Texas, the start of the big red wave. CPAC is this huge and really influential gathering of conservative activists. I know you all can read because you're Republicans, but have you seen, have you seen our theme? What do you think? Is that the right theme? Fire! Pelosi, save America. 
You managed to confuse a lot of people by inviting me. To Bill Gates's point, the opening speaker was Viktor Orban, who is the prime minister of Hungary and a champion of what he calls illiberal democracy. I can already see tomorrow's headlines. Far-right, European racist, and anti-semi-strongman, the Trojan horse of Putin, whole speech at conservative conference. He got an incredibly enthusiastic reception for his speech, which declared common cause with the CPAC crowd against progressive globalists. If somebody has doubts whether progressive liberals and communists are the same, just ask us Hungarians. We fought them both, and I can tell you, they are the same. Well, we won. Carrie Lake was also there to enjoy her victory lap, not just over the left, but also over the anti-Trump right and the old conservative establishment. We drove a stake through the heart of the McCain machine. As she said that, she made this sort of vampire slaying stabbing action. I felt like I had to wear garlic around my neck when I did that. Carrie Lake also had the honor of opening for the headline act. There's no place in this world I'd rather be than to share a stage with the greatest president we've ever known, President Donald J. Trump. Thank you. The proud patriots here today are the beating heart of the conservative movement. That's true. He played all the old hits. The election was rigged and stolen, and now our country The streets of our Democrat-run cities are drenched with the blood of innocent victims. Stop the invasion at our southern border. And the fake news media is totally complicit in all of these things that are happening. After an hour and a half, he was still talking. So Alexandra and I decamped to the back of the hall to have a debrief about what we made of it all. I felt like he wrapped up a lot of the themes that we heard over the last couple of days, like a well-choreographed finale. But some of the things that he got a standing ovation for yeah. surprised me. Yeah, like uh, the education stuff, abolishing the Department of Education, the critical race theory stuff, got a much bigger ovation than the border stuff. Yes. And if federal bureaucrats are going to push this radicalism, we should abolish the Department of Education. And I think that was his loudest innovation, which surprised me. Yeah, I think the culture wars have kind of moved on from immigration to some degree. Yeah. Interestingly, I was sitting next to an independent while I was waiting for President Trump to come on, and he was explaining that he tends to vote more Republican. He had just recently moved to Dallas from California, um, but kind of sees this as a much more mainstream gathering than I think it's being covered. I think a lot of people are dismissing this as fringe, and I think that this represents a large and growing wing of the Republican Party. Ahead of the midterms, it's not unusual for a former president to campaign for his party, but it is unusual for him to campaign for himself. Trump didn't declare a 2024 run at CPAC. All but. But I ran twice, I won twice, and now we may have to do it again. We may have to do it again.
Idris, I've attended plenty of CPAC gatherings myself, and they're pretty unusual. They're not necessarily a perfect guide to what's going on in the Republican Party at the moment, because the people who go and the people who are invited are, you know, a bit unrepresentative, is, would be one way of putting it. But what useful data did you gather from, from that trip? I think that's a fair point. I think, you know, you wouldn't infer the direction of the Democratic Party from going to a gathering of Democratic Socialists. But what we've seen over the years is that although CPAC has, has always been known as a gathering of the truest believers uh, within the conservative movement, I think that actually what they represent and what the Republican Party has become has converged over time, um, such that while 10 years ago, CPAC was a window into the Tea Party right and a preview of what was to come, it was pretty far away from mainstream Republicanism. And today, CPAC, I think, is, is much closer to representative of mainstream Republicanism than it ever has been before. I mean, one thing that struck me about going there as a, as a symbol of, of how much things have changed is that if you think about the last 20 years of Republican presidential tickets and you think about who is an acceptable person to have at CPAC, whose who's memory is worth citing. I mean, there actually aren't that many people who make the cut. George W. Bush gets booed. Dick Cheney gets booed because of his daughter, Liz. John McCain is denounced by Carrie Lake and other people. Sarah Palin's okay. She's the only one who's okay, actually. Mitt Romney, no good. Paul Ryan, no good. Pence, even, no good, because Pence didn't, didn't let the election be stolen. It's not just CPAC, right? The whole party has turned against all of those standard bearers pretty dramatically. And the only people who are left, who are lauded, are Trump and Sarah Palin, who was, I think, a, a sort of precursor to all of this. Yeah, I think that what thing that has been true of the Republican Party historically, right, is that it's been, people talk about Democrats as a big tent, but the Republican Party has been a relatively big tent. You had pro-business establishment Republicans writ large, big generalization, who were lumped together with evangelicals, um, who were lumped together with the Rand Paul supporters. And it's been this kind of motley collection. And it's been easy for the establishment center of the Republican Party to dismiss those on the outside as radical, but we tolerate them because, you know, they're part of this Republican coalition and some of them are very energized and bring people to the polls. And what you now see is is those on the outskirts of the party moving to the center, those on that used to be the center absolutely losing influence. And that's pretty decisive. Yeah, and actually in this case, the CPAC straw poll, so that's a quick poll that's taken of attendees, isn't that out of line with the sorts of polls of Republican primary voters. So 69% of the CPAC attendees said they'd support Donald Trump in a primary. 24% said they'd support Ron DeSantis, Florida's governor. And Donald Trump had a 99% approval rating among CPAC attendees, which is high. If you look at polls about who Republicans would like to run in 2024, Donald Trump gets about 50% in that, which sounds low. But given that you only need 30-something percent to do really well in those early states, it's actually pretty high. And then 25% say Ron DeSantis, so the same as the CPAC number, and you get about 25% undecided. So Idris, earlier in the year, there was quite a lot of speculation about whether Republican primary voters might be tiring of Donald Trump's you know, non-stop drama and might be open to somebody offering MAGA without all of that baggage. And, and Ron DeSantis seemed like the most likely candidate for that role does that still seem like a plausible exit from Trumpism to you? I think it is the most plausible exit from Trumpism right now. Um, that I think doesn't necessarily mean that it is likely, given the, where the polls are now. Trump does have an incredible amount of strength. Um, you know, he won 
his primary in 2016, which was pretty hotly contested with only 46% of the vote. And Ted Cruz came in second with 25% of the vote. And we didn't think that that was a particularly close contest back then. The the hope, I guess, for, for people who want Trump to move on from the party is that something changes in the next two years, which is a very long time in American politics. But DeSantis has this ability to get the Trumpy people to like him while also presenting as um, more plausible, less chaotic to a lot of the moderates who are just tired of Trump. And what they like, you know, when I interviewed Republicans about what DeSantis' appeal laid in, it was the fact that he had the right enemies. Um, He was against the media. He was against indoctrination of kids in schools. He was against companies that had gotten too woke. And he doesn't have the sort of hurricane of scandal surrounding him. He's certainly not a Mitt Romney Republican. I mean, he'd be very far out from, from where the party was 10 years ago. But you know, if you are a Republican who's disheartened with the course of the party, you can at least console yourself that he doesn't seem that likely to attempt coups to stay in power. <laughs> I love that as the standard. I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? There are two different things that have happened, right, in, in the post-Trump era. So in 2016, you had a lot of the people I will refer to as establishment Republicans thinking that Trump might be able to harvest some angst among the base but serve traditional Republican economic principles in the way that Republicans of yore would combine angst on social issues like abortion but serve broader Republican economic principles. Now what you have instead is a party, including DeSantis, that's abandoned many of those historic tenets of the Republican Party and there's more support for economic nativism and any trade and so forth. Those are sets of policies that we as the economists may not agree with, um, but are not inherently anti-democratic. And then there's a second component of what's happened, which is just the basic subversion of the rule of law and institutions in service of Trump himself. And so if you have a candidate, a Republican candidate, who aligns with the former set of changes, but isn't in favor of the subversion of the rule of law, then you know, that's just a judgment that voters would have to make, whether they like those ideas, but they're certainly legitimate, right? The economic ideas are legitimate, even if we might not agree with them. And what you see in Arizona is people who are interested in both subverting the rule of law and embracing a new set of Republican ideas. But DeSantis, I think, rightly is seen as a better option of those two because he doesn't seem to completely want to abandon the rule of law. But he's also got time on his side. The other famous thing about Ron DeSantis is that he was at college with Charlotte Howard. And so he <laughs> may the well... the main famous thing. The main famous thing. He may well conclude that in 2024, you know, his best path to the top is to be Donald Trump's running mate. Right? Yes, that may be true. All right, before I let you guys go, it's quiz time. The Economist first mentioned Mar-a-Lago in an April 1997 article recounting Donald Trump's unlikely return from bankrupt obscurity. We wrote that Mr. Trump had been, quote, forced by his bankers to admit that branding is more important than ownership, concluding that he'll deal himself out of trouble if need be. Trump bought Mar-a-Lago in the mid-80s at the height of his glitter, but before that, it sat empty for a decade. The wealthy Post family who had built it left it to the National Park Service in the hope of it serving as a winter White House. But it was so expensive to maintain and hard to secure the site that Congress had to give it back, little knowing it would eventually fulfil that destination a few decades later. Question one. The first winter White House was Woodrow Wilson's in Mississippi. Since then, which four other presidents, as well as Donald Trump, have chosen Florida for their official bit of winter sun? 
Maybe Roosevelt. Thought he went to Georgia. Oh yeah, of course. Um, Not Nixon. Uh, I don't know. JFK. JFK, one out of four. You're fast out of the uh, gate, Charlotte. Okay, it's not Reagan. It's not Reagan would have done California, Nixon, California. Um, I don't know. Eisenhower. Nixon actually is one oh. of them. Apparently he had a place in Key Biscayne. Mm. So Nixon and JFK, Harry Truman had his little White House in Key West, and apparently Warren G. Harding, who's a great answer to almost any presidential trivia quiz, had an estate in Bird Key. Question two. When Marjorie Merriweather Post built Mar-a-Lago in the 1920s, she was the wealthiest woman in the US. She was the owner of the immensely successful General Foods Corporation, which would eventually become Kraft Heinz. But to what all-American store-cupboard staple did she owe her fortune? This is packaged food. This is my category. This is your category. This is one of many. This and musicals. <laughs> Campbell's Soup Cans? No, different company. Um... um it's not oatmeal, because General Mills is something else. You're really warm here, Charlotte. If you go a little bit along in the store cupboard uh, from the oatmeal, you might just get there. Cream of wheat? No. There's no fortune that's ever been built on cream of wheat. Tell us. It was, in fact, cereal. cereal. So mm. her father, C.W. Post, apparently had been a patient of Dr. Kellogg in the 1890s, where part of the health-giving sanatorium diet was Dr. Kellogg's cornflakes. Mr. Post, having experienced this wonder, then created his own grape nuts, which was the start of a cereal empire. So it was grape nuts. Grape nuts were the start of a cereal Not empire. Not my favorite Interesting. cereal. I actually kind of like grape nuts, but I feel like yeah. I'm the only human on Earth. I mean, they're pretty objectively equivalent to gravel. Um, Idris, where do you stand on the great grape nut controversy? I'm learning lots of things. All right. Well, Idris, we'll let you get back on the road. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Charlotte, see you soon. Bye. Thank you. I'm actually going to be away next week, so you're going to be in the host's chair. Indeed. This episode was produced by Amika Shortino-Nolan with research by Noor Abraham. The sound engineer was Saul Rivers. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can explore our archive on our homepage at economist.com slash checkspod, where you can also sign up to the excellent Checks and Balance newsletter. If you want to write to us direct, you'll find us at podcasts at economist.com. We really like having your emails. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.